awesome. So rightfully deserved. Uh, we thank you so much for taking that, God. And we just ask that uh, we don't forget the reason for the season. And it's not just you, but it's like uh, like Jason told us last week. It's you know, our sin is the reason for the season. Our, 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 our falling short is the reason for the season. Because uh, it's the reason you came. It's the reason that you uh, died for us. And God, we are so thankful that you um, decided to just not, not just let us just sit here and and just wallow in, in our own self-pity, trying to build enough towers or build enough ladders or enough stairways to get to heaven. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, bridging that gap and coming down and extending your arm uh, and, and accompanying us along this, this road that we travel in, this, um, this constant battle that we fight, God. We know that you're always with us. We know that you're always everywhere we go. So, God, we ask that today you just uh, speak to us through this message. Open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to everything you have to say to us. And we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. If you will, this is not the <clears throat> excuse me. This is not the verse we're camping out on this morning. It's not even going to be on the screen. But go ahead in your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter one. It's where we began last week. We said we we're going to do a very short, uh, three-part uh, Christmas sermon series. Uh, entitled The Reason for the Season. And I'm sure that you can tell that I spent a lot of time thinking and pondering and meditating and using all of my creative capacities to come up with the title of this sermon series. Um, that's all just a terrible joke, which I'm never good at. But something that was mentioned last week, and David just mentioned it in his prayer, um, we are looking at this in a different way and in a, in a different light. It is on T-shirts, bumper stickers, yard signs, the reason for the season. I mean, I have it at my house. My mom puts this sign out by our uh, mailbox. It says, Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and like I said last week, in many ways, that is very accurate, except for really... Sin is the reason for the season, and Jesus is the answer for that. Because remember what we said last week. Had there been no sin, there is no Christmas. Matter of fact, there, there really are no holidays. There's no Christmas, there's no Easter uh, to celebrate. Uh, the events of Genesis chapter 3 uh, set into play the Christmas story and the Easter story. Now, we also said last week that um, the, the Christmas story was not an afterthought. It wasn't like, oh, Adam and Eve have sinned. God says, oh, we need to do something about this. The book of Revelation teaches us that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world or the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So long before God created the world, God had already designed and purposed uh, the season of Christmas and the season of Easter. But they only exist because of sin. So sin is the reason for the season. And if you will, just look real quick at Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this is our jumping off point that we started with last week. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. There's the, that, that word uh, for is a purpose statement. 
for he will save his people from their, their sins. Jesus is born because sin has come into the world. And because sin has entered the world, a savior must now enter the world. And so last week we talked about uh, that Christmas gives us a new nature. That's what we talked about last week. Christmas gives us a new nature. And we said we needed a new nature because we were depraved, we were dead, and we were doomed. It's pretty easy to remember, right? We're depraved, we're dead, and we were doomed. But Christmas, at Christmas, what did Jesus do? He descended. And you remember, I, uh, I, I told you, you see this, this um, uh, drawing where it's a mountain and you got all these roads going up the mountain and each road is labeled a different type of religion. And Christianity is always lumped in, is always one of those roads. And at the top of the mountain is God. And I told you that that's totally bogus. But that is how every religion works. You got to work your way up to God. But I, I told you the next time you saw that or the next time one, the next time someone tried to say, well, oh, all religions are the same. I was behind a car yesterday uh, in traffic and it had one of those coexist bumper stickers. Have you seen those? The coexist. Uh, basically what it means is why don't we all get along? We ultimately believe the same. And the answer to that is we don't. Because every other religion believes they're trying to get up the mountain to God. And we are the only religion in the world that believes that God descended and came down to us. Why? Because we're depraved, we're dead, and we're doomed. So how do dead people get up the mountain? They can't. Somebody's got to come down the mountain to where we are. And praise God, that's what Christmas is it's God, Emmanuel, with us. God comes down to us. And he gives us this new nature. He gives us the ability uh, by faith to believe in him and to be given this new nature that wants to follow God, wants to serve God, that loves God. And people say, oh, I love God. That's not a problem. Remember how Jesus de defines love for God. Only those who do my Father's will love God. Jesus always equates love for God with obedience to God. And the only way you and I can obey God is that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And the only way that we get God's Spirit living inside of us as dead people is that the Spirit of God has to move on our deadness and bring us to life by faith. So your salvation was totally an act of God. You're dead. The Holy Spirit begins to move on you, according to John chapter 3. The Spirit breathes on you and provides you the necessary faith to believe in Christ and therefore become a child of God. So today what we want to do is, now that we see that we've got this new nature, we've got this ability to obey God, we've got this desire to obey God, we've got this want to to obey God, now that we've got this new nature and this new life, let's talk about the second gift that Christmas gives us. Christmas gives us a new name. It gives us a new name. Names, both first and last, are important. They help to establish an identity. They help to enforce our involvement. And they ensure our inheritance. Those are my three points this morning. We'll... We'll get to those. You don't have to write all that down now. We'll get to it. 
What do you think about when you hear the following names? The Kennedys, the Roosevelts, the Bush, the Bushes. What do you think about? Say politics. Okay, y'all can't talk this morning. I mean, y'all kind of look a little hazy out there, all right? All right, I'll give you another shot. The Jacksons, the Osmonds, the Winans, the Jonas Brothers for all of our millennials. That's right, music. How about this one? The Kardashians, the Robertsons, the Duggars. Drama. <laughs> Drama. Reality TV. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just had to, I happened to flip the channel the other day. No, I didn't. Angel had been home, and I turned on the TV behind her, and it was on the channel that the Kardashians come on. And it, and it just dawned on me for a moment. You know, these people have been on TV a long time. So on my TV, you can hit the info button. It'll tell you how many seasons. Do you realize that these people have been on TV for over a decade? They have been making millions and millions and millions of dollars from, I don't know what, I'm not sure what they do, but they have become, I mean, they were, don't get me wrong, they were rich before, but they are richer now uh, because of this uh, uh, reality television show. But names mean something, and we can hear certain names in our society, and we automatically attach uh, some t- something to that name. So names are important. A Kennedy was just, it was just known that they would be a politician. Remember even JFK's son, who, you know, tragically died in a plane crash? What was always asked about him? When are you going to run for office? When are you going to run for office? Why? Because there's an expectation that a Kennedy would run for office. If you were born in, in the Jackson family, you were either going to be a singer or a musician. I mean, it was just uh, said of you that that's what you would be. Do you know something that's really interesting about names is that if, you, if we were to go back, um, say, you know, five or 600 years, that a lot of the names, European names that we have, do you know a lot of those names, the last names, are attached actually to the livelihood of the individual? If you ever see somebody that has the last name Carpenter, more than likely the origin of their name was that their family were carpenters. And so there, there is a sense in which your name would even be, uh, would, would be attached to what you actually did for a living. So names are important. Names are vitally important in the Bible. In the Old Testament, a name stood for a person's reputation, their fame, and their glory. Parents often gave children names that described the parents' hopes and future expectations regarding that child. So look at this verse. I often use this at uh, funerals. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. When I was a kid growing up, my mom was a, an, avid, an avid cross-stitcher. Do y'all know what cross-stitching is? Okay, I, I, people still do it today. Don't, I, at least I don't see it near as much as I used to. And, and I don't know if she did a lot of that because she was bored and needed something to do or the fact that we were poor and it was cheaper for her to cross-stitch to decorate the walls than it was to actually go out and buy something to decorate the walls. But nonetheless, she was constantly cross-stitching. And... Um, 
And I still have, I still have all of her cross stitching, but I have one in particular that's in my office at home hanging up on the wall. And it simply says Jason. And below it is a verse, James chapter 5, verse 16. And that verse talks about that the, the name Jason, the origin of the name means healer. It means healer. Now, you know, I don't know. I've never, you know, she's in here. I don't, I don't, I've never really asked her in the last 46 years, you know, hey, did you pick that name out because that's, you know, your aspirations were me, for me to be a doctor or something in the medical healing profession. Um, but names have meanings to them. And it's, whether it was, perp, whether she purposely did it or uh, it was unintentional or intentional, it's kind of it's it's kind of odd. It's kind of neat in a way that kind of I didn't become a doctor, but part of what my life has been about, at least for the last twenty eight or thirty years, has been about uh, bringing healing into people's lives. But so I I did something that well I, actually I did I found something and then I did it. I found an internet website where you could put your name in, and based on some kind of algorithm that they've come up with, that um, they can give you your personality based on your name. I, I'm going to just put it out there. I don't, you know, it's pretty accurate, by the way. All right. Now, I'm not putting a lot of faith or trust into that. They really know what they're talking about, but it is kind of odd that. What my name, the, the personality that's attached to my name actually is very fitting. So let me just throw it out there. Okay, I'm just trying to build a case for uh, how important a name is. So the name Jason uh, has given you sensitivity and appreciation for the finer and deeper things in life. You enjoy reading, studying, and contemplation about many different subjects. When your interests or, cur- or curiosity are aroused, you work intensely at new undertakings. Your name has taken you into many bitter experiences. The greatest lack in your life is stability and peace of mind. A peaceful and quiet environment, especially out in nature, is one of your greatest desires, but you are constantly taken into chaotic situations. Uh, You have high ideals and are a principal person. You have been disillusioned and disappointed in people on many occasions and have experienced much aloneness. You're fond of outdoor sports where you can find an outlet for your nervous energy. Impulsiveness could bring frequent accidents and unfortunate happenings into your life. You do not like to be restricted or to have your freedom curtailed in any way. You find it difficult to control your thoughts and could swing in moves from one extreme to the other. Your speech can become very critical and sarcastic when frustrated or crossed. Uh, This name creates a weakness in your heart, lungs, and bronchial organs, and could uh, lead to uh, health issues. So when I type my name in, that's what they told me about myself. I would say there's probably about an 80% accuracy in what was said. But irregardless of what some website extrapolates out of my name, a name is very important. And even more so, it's important in what we're talking about this morning in that Christmas gives us a new name. You see, the word name in the Old Testament 
literally means a mark or a brand. So think about that for a moment. Your Bible teaches you this truth, that a name means a mark or a brand. Brand like Nike, Adidas, whatever. People were given the names they were given for a reason. A study of Bible names often reveals much about the personality of people mentioned in the Bible. For instance, David means beloved. Isn't that interesting? Because what does uh, God say about David? He's a man after my own heart. Abraham means the father of a multitude. Jacob's name meant trickster. Goliath means splendor. All of these people proved true to their names. Names were also changed in scriptures to establish new identities, enforce a new involvement, and ensure a new inheritance. Abram, which meant exalted father, did not quite live up to his name because he was unable to do, uh, produce any offspring. Remember, his name is Abram. Then God adds to his name and calls him Abraham. Why? Because he is going to be the father of many. So God gave him a new name, and that provided him the necessary means to live up to his name. Isn't that interesting how God added to his name and then waited till he was way past the years of being able to produce a child and then says, oh, by the way, you're no longer going to be called Abra, Abram, but you'll be called Abraham, the father of many. And Abram's, Abraham's like, how's that going to happen in my old age? And, that because, and that's because, listen... When God gives you a name, he also provides the resources to live up to that name. I'm going to say that one more time because you really got to let that sink in. This is the crux of the sermon. If God gives you a new name, if he gives you a name, then with that name comes all the needed resources to live up to that name. So let's talk about this new name. It does... Three things, three occurrences. Number one is this. It establishes our new identity. This new name establishes our new identity. It establishes our new identity. So last week, we get a new nature. Now this week, with that new nature, becomes this new name. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which we read this past week in our daily reading, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. What's your new identity? You're a child of God. You may say, well, Brother Jason, aren't we all children of God? No, we're not. We're all creations of God, but only those who have been born again are children of God. So this new name establishes a new identity. And this new identity is rooted in family. Okay? So this new identity is rooted in family. And so what is our new family? We are children of God. Right? We're children of God. So we're brought in to this family. We're rooted. We're grafted into the family of God. The, the literal language of the Bible is we are adopted. We'll get to that language a little later on in the sermon. 
but we are adopted into the family of God. John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13 says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in, in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now listen, that word right gave them the R-I-G-H-T, right to become. That word literally means he gave them the power to become the children of God. How did we get the power to become the children of God when we were dead? The Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit begins to work and the Holy Spirit begins to breathe on our life. And he breathes life into our dead body spiritually. And we are given the power through the breath of the Holy Spirit to be brought to life. Just like God breathed into the nostrils of Adam to bring him to life, so does the Holy Spirit breathe on us to bring us to life. And so we have a, we're rooted in a new family. But also, this, is that, uh, this new name establishes our new identity by reinforce, and it's reinforced by our Father. So we're rooted in a family, and then it's, this identity is reinforced by our Father. Listen, fathers play an incredible role in the lives of their children. And don't get me wrong, I'm, dads have messed their children up far more than mothers have because fathers tend to be the one that abandon their children or neglect their children or will not have anything to do with their children. But I'm going to tell you something. If this new identity is rooted in family, it is, it is reinforced by, by our Heavenly Father. And listen, I don't know what your family life was like. I don't know what your, what your dad was like in your life. But whatever he was, whether he was good or bad, don't allow your earthly father to have a negative effect on how you look at your Heavenly Father. Listen to what the Scripture says. Listen to some of this reinforcement of our identity by our Father. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Or how about this, John twelve forty nine. For I have spoken, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. Listen. Our Heavenly Father, when we look at Scripture and we look at who He is and what He does, is that we are to follow our older brother, Jesus' example. Jesus simply looked at what the Father did, and Jesus did on earth what the Father was doing in heaven. So if you want to know what God does and what God is like, then look at Jesus, your elder brother, 
Watch what he does, then repeat what he does, because by repeating what he does, you are doing what the Father is doing in heaven. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is, we see what God does in heaven, or we, Jesus sees what God does in heaven, he repeats it on earth, we see what Jesus has done on earth, and then we repeat it. And so if we're looking for our identity, our identity is reinforced by what our Father has already done or by what our Father is doing. So we have a new identity. Okay? We have, we have this new identity. And then, second... It enforces our involvement. This new name enforces our involvement. It enforces our involvement. Probably the greatest question that's asked by people in the world today is what in the world am I here for? Right? What am I here for? What's my purpose in the world? Well, Christmas gives us an identity. The identity puts us inside of a family. The family gives us a father. Okay? And then, this family and this father enforces our involvement. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Watch, watch this. But you are a chosen race. You hear that? This is what you are. This is, this is who you are. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You want to know who you are, why you're here? That's why. That's who you are. Now watch the purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's own people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So our involvement is enforced by this purpose. By this purpose. You see, when you have a purpose, you can't just sit on the sideline. There's a story told about John F. Kennedy. He was at the uh, Space Center, and he was walking through to get an update on how the preparations for putting a man on the moon were going. And um, he walked by this gentleman, and he said, Sir, what do, what do you do here? And uh, he said, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And he looked at the gentleman's name tag, and it said his name, and below it, it said janitor. You see, that guy's, he had a purpose. 
He had a purpose. He understood that everything going on in the space center, from taking out the garbage to sitting in the cockpit like John Glenn did, everybody had an involvement in getting the getting John Glenn on the moon, or excuse me, Neil Armstrong on the moon. Everybody was involved in that. It took a total team effort, and, and that purpose is what was driving him. It was, a, it was a family. He was part of a group. He was part of a family. And the purpose of that family enforced his involvement. Not only gives us a purpose, but go on to the next point, Mark, if you will. It gives us a people. Yeah, it gives us a people. Yeah, go back. It gives us a people. How about that? You got a people. You got a family. You got a group of people to call your own. Once you were not a people... I think the reason why that maybe doesn't land on us the way that it should is because look at what it says before that. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Some of us have forgotten who our people used to be. We were in the people of the darkness. But God's now called us into a new group of people, a people of the light. And what's even more important about all of this is that this family that we're involved in is a permanent family. It's a permanent family. Now, I want you to consider uh, something this morning. The book of Jude, chapter 24, I mean, uh, Jude, verses 24 and 25, say these words. God the Father, excuse me, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are beloved in God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. Then we skip down to verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does that mean? To keep you from stumbling. He's talking about pertaining to not having failed to keep the law. So read it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from, to keep, excuse me, now to him who is able to keep you to keeping the law and to present you blameless, which means being without fault and hence moral blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy 
to the to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now listen. Think about what he says. Now to him who is able to keep you from breaking the law, or to him who is able to keep you keeping the law. How many of you have already broke one ten commandment already this morning? Yeah, that's all nod. Yeah, we, we've... Matter of fact, we've broken all 10 of them probably already this morning. So, is Jude just, I mean, it, how can he say that God is able to keep us from breaking the law or he's able to keep us keeping the law? Either, either Jude is lying or we don't fully understand what he's saying. Because the reality, our reality is we've broken the law. Our reality is that we're going to break the law tomorrow, right? If you wake up tomorrow, you're going to break the law. God's law, not man's law, God's law. So what does he mean by this? Here's what he means. He's not talking about our reality. He's talking about our identity. He's not talking about our reality. He's talking about our identity. I'm going to let that sit on you for a second. When you get to heaven, let me ask you a question. When you stand before God, how are you getting into heaven? Are you getting, in, are you getting into heaven based on your name? Are you getting into heaven based on your works? Are you getting into heaven based on your ability? You're getting into heaven based on someone else's credentials and identity. Your righteousness, isn't, if it's based on your righteousness, you're out of luck. But it's not based on your righteousness, right? It's based on Christ's righteousness. Is it based on the way you lived your life? Based on the way Christ lived his life, right? You see, there was an identity transfer. When you got this new name, you got this new identity. You are the children of God. How? Because God's Son became a man so that men could become sons of God. So now you have this new identity, and it's this identity that keeps us from breaking the law. You see, when you get to heaven, you're going to get into heaven based on not your keeping of the law, but on Christ's keeping of the law. You're getting in on His identity, not on your identity. Why? Because your identity is now in what? Christ. That's why Paul uses that, that phrase so many times, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Why? Because your life is now hidden in Christ. That way, when you get to heaven, the only way you got to heaven is that you were in Christ and Christ kept you from stumbling and presents you blameless. Why? Because he never stumbled and he never sinned. That's why we believe in eternal security. Not secure because of what I've done, but secure because of what Christ has done. I've been given everything that Jesus has. God is not going to treat me 
as I deserve to be treated, he's going to treat me like he treats his son. Now, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to skip some stuff here just, just so we can get out of here before late this afternoon. But let me throw this out at you, okay? One of the reasons why I like to talk about the security of our salvation is because several years ago, we were, we were doing a deep dive into why, are, why, why do people not mature spiritually? Why are people still, so many Christians still in the stage of spiritual infancy? And one of, one, one of the top three reasons that people who study this have, have arrived at is this. The reason why so many people remain infant Christians is because they have no assurance of their salvation. Most Christians waver between whether they're saved or not. Okay? So let me, use the, let me go back and say something I said earlier. Remember I, I said the word adoption? We, we, we're brought into this family by adoption. That's why the Bible uses adoptive language. Now, I'm gonna t- listen, this is what I found. I want us to notice some things that happened under Roman law when a child was adopted. So listen to these. All the past of the child was forgiven. Now imagine, okay, watch. You're a child over here, no family. Okay, you got no family. But what's happening is there's a family over here and they, and they say, you know what, we want to take this child on as our child. We want to bring that child who is not biologically ours into our family and treat them as though they're one of our biological children. All right? So now you're looking at this kid over here. And you know what's interesting about Roman adoptions? Do you know a lot of Roman adoptions happen later in life? They didn't adopt a lot of small kids. It's, 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 it's really interesting. And a lot of times what would happen, now check this out. If a Roman family did not have a, ma- a male heir, then what they would do is they would begin to look for a male to adopt into their family so that they would have a male heir to continue their family name on. Make sense? I mean, that's huge in that day. Don't, it's not downplaying women at all. Don't, don't hear that, you know, they just hated women. No, the, they, the, the name, the name, the family name was important. They wanted the name to carry on. If you got all girls, your name is going to die. So they would look for a male boy to bring into the family, adopt, okay? And a lot of times, they would have tried years and years and years and years, right? So the couple's older. Well, they don't really want to go find a baby boy to bring into the family. So what's easier to do? Find a boy that's older, adopt him, bring him into the family. Did you get all that? Because if you didn't, this next part ain't going to make you shout hallelujah, You won't raise a hallelujah, and you should. Listen, so this is what would happen. So here's the boy over here, okay? Let's just say he's 18 years old. How many of y'all regret a lot of stuff you did by the time you were 18? How many of you had a lot of stuff by the time 18 you wish you could just expunge, do away with, and just pretend like it never happened? All right? Now watch. 
All the past of the child was forgiven. So the parents are looking, and the boy knows this. We're going to bring you into our family. And he's saying, but not, not, it doesn't matter. Because once we bring you over, it's just like you hadn't done anything wrong. Whatever your record was, no matter how bad it is, guess what? When you get to come over here in this family, <laughs> it's wiped clean. There is no record except a clean one. Watch. It was against Roman law to bring up a child's past after they were adopted. Yes! Get me on the adoption ledger right now. I mean, think about it. You can't even bring it up. You wonder why God uses the language of adoption to talk about how you got brought into the family? Because what does God say about you? I no longer hold that against you. Now, he's forgiven, but he hadn't forgotten, right? Because God doesn't forget anything or he wouldn't be God. He, forgiveness is not forgetting. It's I don't hold it against you any longer. All right, so let's keep going. When someone was adopted, all debt was forgiven. It didn't matter how deep the debt was. It was gone. Y'all, do I need to translate that? Huh? I got translation in the notes, but I'm thinking, I also put a little note that said, they're smart enough to get that. An adopted child got, number three, an adopted child got a brand new family. Sometimes the children came from very poor families. They barely got one meal a day and didn't have any good clothes. Sometimes parents had no, had no alternative but to put their children up for adoption. A good Jewish family would come along and adopt the children. When the children left the courtroom, they went to a brand new Family and a brand new house. And guess what? When you get saved, you got a brand new family, no matter how bad yours was. And guess what? God's building you a brand new house. How about the last one? The fourth one. Upon adoption, everything the father, everything the father owned now belonged to the child. And, how, and listen to this. this is, I'll, I bring this up to you every time because this is one of the parts I love. <clears throat> In Jewish culture, you could... You remember the story of the prodigal son? How the boy left and the father had every right to treat him just like he was dead because the boy was treating his daddy as, as, as though he was dead? Now listen, a, a Jewish family could disown their child Matter of fact, they could kill them without any recompense if they had the right reasons. But listen to this. If you adopted a child, you could never, under any circumstance, ever break your relationship or ever disown that child, ever. It was against the law. And as a matter of fact, it just wasn't even possible to do. Now, if I didn't build a pretty strong case this morning that this family that we've been brought in and this purpose that this family gives us is not permanent, I got nothing else to give you. And not only... Not only is it permanent, 
But this is what I want to send you home with today. It's plentiful. It's plentiful. It is plentiful. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. But, but, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What, look, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There was a baseball player this past week that signed a contract for $35 million a year. $35 million a year. Now listen, the math is this. That basically means every day he lives, he makes roughly $100,000. Now let me ask you a question. I mean, think about trying to spend $100,000 a day. His contract is for the next nine years. So guaranteed for the next nine years, he's basically going to make $100,000 a day. Some of y'all would say, if you gave me 90 years, I couldn't spend $100,000 a day of nine years. That, that's a number that's unfathomable to us. But listen, let me give you a number that exceeds that. You want to know how rich God is? Rich in grace and rich in mercy? You want to know how great the inheritance that awaits those that are his children? Is that God says that it's going to take me an eternity to show you all I got for you. It's going to take me an eternity to show you everything I've got for you. So here's my final thought for you to leave on this week and a half before Christmas. Think about this for a moment. How many times have we looked at other people that have a rich inheritance awaiting them? I just think, think about it for a moment, okay? So you've got somebody that's rich and our, I mean, their parents are rich, but they know it's coming to them and they, and, and they act and live in such a way, right? Sometimes they're, you know, they, they, we, we attach names, call them, you know, snobby or whatever. I don't even know what the terminology would be. You know, today, rich kid, you know, they're just living off their parents' money. They're living off this inheritance. But, but here, here's what I'm trying to get you to think about. When you've been brought into this family, okay, and then you've got this father 
who was incredibly generous. And then you've got this father who has got this inheritance that's set away from, for you that's literally going to take a, a, a number without a number for you to even to experience all that he has for you. If if some little sum of earthly money can cause someone to behave in a very negative way, a snobbish way, uh, I'm I'm better than you way, then let me ask you a question. How in the world should a family and a father who has an inheritance set aside for you that's an inheritance that is immeasurably rich and merciful, and that's going to take an eternity for him to give it to you, how in the world should that change how we live in this world? Hmm? How should that change how we, what we do with our money, how we live our lives, how we do everything that we do? Listen, Christmas has given you a new name if you're a Christian. And that new name gives you a new identity. And that new identity should change everything about how you live your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can live this way not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Just like you gave your son, Jesus, a name that is above every name, that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have given us a new name. And this new name empowers us to go and live in this world in a way that is radically different than the world lives. This is a a name that reminds us that we have something that has been given to us that is rich beyond our wildest dreams. And so, Father, this morning I pray that if, that if earthly money can make people behave most of the time in such a negative and, and bad way, may the fact that we, the children of God, have an eternal inheritance that's been given to us by great mercy and great grace that it would affect us to live our life in an incredible, glorious way that would bring great honor and glory to your name. You have brought us into this family. And it's a permanent family. It's a forever family. It's not a momentary family. And it's a family that we can rest in. Knowing that we didn't get in in it because of what we have done, but because of what Christ did. And that we don't stay in it because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And may that, may all of this, Father, this morning just come together in our hearts and spur us on to love and good works. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing this morning.